Are you pregnant or a new parent looking to ensure a better postpartum experience? Or are you a birth worker looking to improve your postpartum care skills? Check out Thriving After Birth, an online self-paced course by me, midwife and educator Tanya Tringali. It's 10 and a half hours of video content featuring experts in lactation, mental health, pelvic floor health, pediatric sleep issues. You also get worksheets and a workbook, as well as options to have a one-on-one session with me. Sign up at motherwitmaternity.com slash thriving, and let's improve postpartum care together. Always bring somebody with you, even if you can't afford a doula. Bring your mama, your sister, your uncle, somebody, not just to labor and birth, but also prenatally because you want to set the tone that I am not alone. I have a support system and not here, not today, not on my watch. We've got so much more good birthing advice coming from birth advocate Nicole Deggins coming up in just a minute. Hi, everyone. I'm your midwife, Tanya Tringali. Welcome to the Mother Whip Podcast, a show about the issues that we, healthcare consumers, and providers face every day as we interact with the medical system. We'll talk about its blind spots, shortcomings, and share the strategies that we can use to feel seen and heard, no matter which side of the table we sit on. On this episode, our guest has sat on both sides of the proverbial table. She's actually done it all over the country and even from behind a computer screen like me. She even does a whole other kind of screening, film screening. All right, enough with the corny midwife jokes. She is Nicole Deggins, a midwife, doula trainer, and founder of Sista Midwife Productions in New Orleans, Louisiana. I've been a fan of Nicole's for a long time. Before the pandemic hit, I was accepted into a startup accelerator in New Orleans, and it's called Propeller. They take on businesses that are hoping to make a huge social impact. So lots of folks in things like community development, economic development, health, education, food, water, meaning sustainability, dealing with hurricanes and all that stuff. This program taught me so much. It has given me so many tools that I still use today. Anyway, Nicole went through this program two years before me. I was so excited when I learned that I wasn't the first midwife to go through this program. Anyway, her work in birth advocacy and training black birth workers in her home state of Louisiana is so important because Louisiana is almost the worst state in the country to give birth in. It ranks 49th in maternal mortality. The World Health Organization defines maternal mortality as the death of a person during pregnancy or within 42 days of the end of pregnancy. So regardless of whether that pregnancy ends in a birth, a miscarriage, or a termination, okay? So Louisiana has the second highest rate in the U.S. of mothers dying during or shortly after their pregnancies. Black people die at rates three to four times higher than white people. And one-third of all deaths, black and white, occur in the postpartum period. Most of these deaths are preventable, and that's why you hear me talk so much about postpartum. Nicole herself is working so hard to change this. Through Sista Midwife Productions, she trains birth workers, educates her community, consults with organizations that work with childbearing families. A big part of her mission 
is to increase the numbers of Black birth workers because research shows that having Black providers improves outcomes for Black people. Nicole is also passionate about teaching families about their rights and options and creating transparency and accountability within childbirth education and the entire medical obstetrical system. We got into all of this and more, and I'm so excited for you to listen. But before I send you off, just a heads up that I had COVID at the time I was recording this. I'm totally fine now, but you'll hear me clear my throat and sniffle a little, pay it no mind, and enjoy my talk with Nicole. Hi, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Tanya. Thank you for having me. I've really been looking forward to having you on the show. I will tell you, and maybe I told you this in our email exchange when you you know, put it out there that you wanted to do it. Um, I had you on my list from day one before I told you. I have a long list of people who don't know that they're on a list because I'm shy about asking. <laughs> so I kind of you know, wait for someone to say, hey, I'm interested. And then I'm like, score, I got somebody off the list. So um, it's kind of fun. And I'm really grateful for you to share your story, your journey, your really awesome entrepreneurship with my audience. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Thank you. So okay, let's let's just start by you telling us a little bit about who you are. Um, and then we can dive in and, and really talk about midwifery for a little while. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Nicole Deggins, the founder and CEO of System Midwife Productions. We are a birth advocacy training and consulting agency based here in New Orleans, even though we do work, um, I like to say worldwide. We've had a few worldwide customers. Um, I'm born and raised in New Orleans, although truth be told, I was born in Hawaii and I was there until I was Ooh. three when my parents got divorced. But I don't like to share that because you know how <laughs> it is in New Orleans. If you're not born and raised here, it's the issue. And I'm like, I was here since I was three and my family is from New Orleans. But um, my daughter will often correct me. No, you weren't, mommy. You were born in Hawaii. <laughs> you're like, shh, you're blowing my cover. You're blowing my cover, <laughs> right? But so, yeah, I still stay born and raised New Orleans, public school girl, um, mother of one, beautiful daughter who is just everything. Um, and, yeah, that's like the... I don't know, the box answer to who I am, right? Well, sure. And I'll have you add one more detail because I listened to this episode, but I don't remember what show it was. Um, If anyone wants to hear Nicole's birth story, um, she told that on fill in the blank what podcast, please. Well, it's been a few, but more recently it was with, oh, Shayla Brown, Genesis Birthing. Um, She has a series called What Did Our Mamas Do? Was it on that one? I don't know if that's where I heard it. I can't remember right now. Were you on evidence-based birth? I was on evidence-based birth. I think it was was evidence-based birth. I was on evidence-based birth, which I think, but Tanya, you're going to squash this. I think that is the most listened to of all of my podcast interviews because people will always say, I heard you on evidence. I hear that a lot. Well, I mean, we all aspire to be as amazing as that woman yeah, and her yeah, organization. No, sure. So sure. I have no desire. I, I don't even want to try to trump that. I use her materials, her words. Rebecca she does so Decker. much. Yeah, I, it's insane. I couldn't function without her and evidence-based birth as an organization She's anymore. She's great. Yeah. Yep, and she does it so well. Cool. Awesome. All right. So I know we'll get to know more about you uh, as we chat. But yeah, for, for our listeners, 
Nicole's birth story, her journey to birth and all of it is super interesting. It's a great story. Um, And I mean, maybe I'm biased, but I really enjoy listening to the birth stories of birth workers because Mm -hmm. I just think the stories get told in a very special way. Mm -hmm. So I'll make sure to link to that episode in the show notes and any other things uh, Nicole has been on that we can link out to also. Uh, Cool. So let's start by just having you tell us all what brought you to midwifery. We all have such interesting stories, and I think there's an overlap in a lot of our experiences. But within that, there's still usually something super unique. Yeah. So for me, um, one, it, it's like a two, two parts, right? One thing I have learned over the years is that midwifery has always been in my calling, but I did not know. Like spirit was always aligning me to do women's work, to do womb work, to do midwifery. I just didn't know, right? But um, the, 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 the dynamic of it kind of shifted for me. I was a labor and delivery nurse. Initially, I was planning to go to med school to become an OBGYN, as so many people, I, you know, have that piece of the story. And I was working as a labor and delivery nurse, a postpartum nurse. And I was like, I don't want to be a doctor. I don't like what they do. I don't like how it feels. I don't like the energy of obstetrics. Um, that I was observing. And so I was just kind of stuck and trying to figure things out. But I also knew that I was not going to be a staff nurse for long because I didn't like the bureaucracy and the paperwork and the the doctor's orders and things in that space too. And I wanted to be able to make a bigger impact. You know, you're a labor and delivery nurse, you're 12 hours with the mom, period. You never see her again. Maybe if she loves you and you see her in Walmart, this would happen to me you get to see a picture of the baby, but there's no follow up, there's no follow through, there's no full connection. So I wanted to do something bigger and more. And one of the things that really prompted me um, was there was a woman who was a midwife uh, at the hospital. She really worked in the public health clinic system here in New Orleans back when we had housing projects and she worked in like a clinic that was attached to the housing projects, but she was an old white woman. And um, I was like 24. Right. And I looked like her patients. I was like I was, ah, you know, just high energy, always dancing, running around, smiling, laughing, joking, whatever. And so um, at that time in my life, too, I was, quote, different. Right. This was before there were a lot of black people in my community talking about veganism and not eating meat and wearing natural hair. There were people. But in my circle, I was like an anomaly. Right. And I'm not a vegan and I wasn't a vegan then. But the simple fact that I didn't eat bacon and pork chops, like it was like a big deal. And the fact that I thought natural birth was cool. It was like this. Oh, whatever. So anyway, the midwife every so often would come for a birth, depending on her relationship with a particular mom. And so whenever that would happen, because my coworkers knew that I appreciated natural birth and all of these, they used to call me Mother Earth. It was like this, it was a thing when I was working as a new nurse. And so um, they, hey, go take, you know, midwife has this patient here, you be her nurse. And I was like, okay, great. I loved having the midwife as a provider for a patient because quite honestly, what I would try to tell them is it meant I had to work less, honestly. Like the midwife was right there. I didn't have to do anything but write a few vital signs. Like it was great. But at any rate, so let me wrap this up. This birth was something like I had never seen. I was like, wait a minute. 
birth can be like this. So the young woman was, she was a teenager um, and she had experienced lots of trauma, sexual abuse. I did not know that initially, but I found that out after the delivery. And she was using what we now call hypnobirthing, but that was her coping mechanism in her life, right? And so in her labor, the entire labor, she just was like in the rocking chair, like no sound. And I was mesmerized watching this young woman in labor. Um, it was such a, an opposite thing from what I had seen from all the other young women who had been birthing there. And I was at the inner city hospital, a lot of high risk stuff. So this was just a really very different experience. And so the midwife, at one point, the young woman, you know, it was time for her to give birth and she's in the rocking chair and she like, like lets out this sound that we know means that, you know, baby's coming and she kind of gets herself up out the chair and she's looking a little panicked and the midwife slides behind her and almost cradles her like a chair and like supports her. And then there's this other person there that's helping her. I don't remember if it was a resident or a midwife student or whoever the other person was, but then they just kind of gently guide her. And then she births her baby, not in lithotomy, not with stirrups. There were no yelling. The lights didn't jump on. Five residents didn't run in. The NICU team didn't come in screaming. It was like, what? did I just witness? This was deep, right? And so after that birth, the midwife approaches me and she's like, have you ever thought about going to midwifery school? And I was like, not really. And she was like, I think you should. And then, so this, I always press, like the thing is, you know, reality is reality. So she says to me, I think the girls would like you. And basically what she was saying is I'm an old white woman working in this inner city clinic and I don't really fit and you're really good and I think that you would be a better fit and while some people may have taken offense to that I was like she's right they would like me better mm -hmm. than they like you right mm -hmm. and so that was like the biggest seed that was planted for me and I knew that it was time for me to start thinking about graduate school and so I went down the path and, and became a nurse midwife <laughs> so like, where did you okay. go to school I went to Emory University in Atlanta cool so tell me what it is that you, once you were a midwife, right? Because I know for me that what I thought my life would be like was not what it actually was like. And so that's something that I've spent, oh, now a half a lifetime reconciling in various ways. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, once you were finished with midwifery school, before any possible changes came down the pike for you, what did you realize you loved most about the work? Oh, just the families, touching the lives at such an integral part of their journey in this existence, right? Like we reincarnate into this world and there are so many things that happen, but this first rite of passage for the baby and this very significant, important rite of passage for the mom and the father and the grandparents and like everybody who's in, like mm -hmm. it is a, like, it is amazing, you know, to just be in that portal with the family. And I was able to experience it a little bit as a labor and delivery nurse, but certainly as a midwife, you really get to assist women in ushering in the next generation, the, the next world moving forward. Like it is, it's really hard for me sometimes as, as I'm thinking about it um, to put into words because there is nothing more special almost, you know? It's like you are ushering in the whole next generation. You are ushering in people through their journeys 
into a new way of being, into a new existing, and just being able to bear witness and to support um, families in that walk was just really profoundly deep and beautiful for me. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying, because on, on one hand, you can kind of compartmentalize and look at one person's individual journey. Um, and I think one that we all really like, and I certainly experienced for myself, I think you may have too, is you know, giving birth to that baby, I also only have one baby, changed my life in the sense that it was an uh, instant moment in which I knew I could do anything, right? I felt myself on the mountaintop. There's never been a moment that trumps that moment. Aside from the love I have for my kid, it was at some, on some level, it was about me and faith in myself. Um, and there's nothing more profound than that. And so for me as a midwife, I love, I particularly love when I get to see that happen for some people, because mm -hmm. you don't see it as profoundly well, in everyone, yeah, right? Right, right. It, it's like certain moments. But then you've got the family dynamics, the new family that's forming, the life of this person. And so you can kind of like pull the lens forwards and backwards over and over again and get caught up in all the different ways that the this nuances. is evolving. Yep. Totally. I get it. Um, yeah, I'm so with you. I don't know that I saw the family dynamics in a big way until I'd been doing this a whole lot longer. I think you saw that right out of the gate sooner than I did. Um, I think I had like tunnel vision on the pregnant person because I know I used to say like, I don't really care about the baby. It's the pregnant person that I am fascinated oh, with. God. Well, so I would say the reason why I, I really can connect it with family. So my first job as a midwife, I hardly did any birth. It was mostly public health. It was in D.C. And um, so that was that. Then I left that job and moved to rural Mississippi. And you cannot mm -hmm. work as a midwife in rural Mississippi and not understand the family dynamic of mm -hmm. that and not be included and not mm -hmm. um, experience and witness all of the changes that are happening because I was literally in a town working that had like one red light, right? So mm. I saw I would go to the grocery store and see the grandmother of the, the person who I had just seen in clinic that day, like... So, yeah, it, it was a part of that dynamic. Um, mm -hmm. There was really no choice. That's so cool. So on the flip side, was there anything early on in your career that you saw as a struggle or a barrier to being a midwife or enjoying your life as a midwife? <laughs> Lots of things. Um, <laughs> I mean... First of all, I think that this notion of like the midwife getting the call and running to the birth and first of all, being on call, I told somebody this the other day, being on call was anxiety provoking for me. I, so at my, at both of my jobs, there wasn't like this immense amount of being on call. So I didn't have to deal with it as a much at that time, because at my Mississippi job, we did like three days on three days off. So when you were on, you were on and that was a wrap. But um, just that notion that any moment the phone could ring and that life and death was in my hands, that shit was kind of scary to me a lot of times, quite honestly. And it, it gave, it was anxiety provoking sometimes as I can look back and be like, oh my God, is the phone going to ring? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and then there were just not a lot of midwife jobs. There was, at this time, this was in 1999, 2000, 2001, when I was actively working as a midwife and seeking midwifery employment in different places. There were not a lot of midwife jobs. There were not a lot of black women seeking midwifery care. There were lot, not a lot of black midwives. The jobs that I would find largely were either A, in very high volume um, hospital settings that I, like, 
and I'm acting like a resident, I'm working as a physician, which is not why I went into midwifery, or they were like in really tiny towns where there were like no, no culture, no people of color, no music festivals, no good food. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to move there. Um, and so I just found myself feeling lost and confused about what my next step would be. Both of my first jobs ended in unexpected and disappointing ways. And um, I was just like, okay, midwifery kind of sucks right now. And, mm. you know, it was really interesting. There wasn't a lot of mentorship, <clears throat> um, particularly as a young black midwife. I didn't feel like I was very supported in, in community nor in the profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have a real problem in our profession when it comes to preceptorships and support. I mean, it's it's real. I mean, I, I, I am involved in this in, at two universities and it's it's the biggest struggle I think we have in terms of even maintaining what we have built so far, right? Like if you think about the fact that midwives only do 10% of the births in this country, it's not great as a starting point. And I think we're gonna struggle just to maintain what we have not to mention all the other side conversations we can have and maybe will about the different types of midwives and all the different ways this can go, which is a whole other confusing element. Um, I guess I want to know, like, what made you leave full scope, full time midwifery? Like, was it related to burnout? Was it related to frustration? Or was it that you thought up this dream that you are now working on? And you had to like walk away and go do it. Like what happened there? Well, so initially it was because like I previously just mentioned, both of my jobs ended in in disappointing, shockingly, like really, that's how this is going down kind of ways, right? So when my second job ended abruptly in a similar fashion, um, not similar fashion to my first loss of job, but in this, it left a similar emotional feeling and there were no jobs available. Nobody would hire me. I was like, you know what? I've always wanted to do travel nursing anyway. And so that was my initial leaving from midwifery to just Mm. go and to be a travel labor and delivery nurse. I wasn't even, I was like barely 30. If I was 30, I can't remember right now. And it was like, man, F all this. This is ridiculous. I'm about to travel this country and make some good money and have some fun and hang out and see different parts of the country. And so that's what I did for a few years. Um, And then after some time, I was ready to re-enter midwifery, but the barriers were real. They continued to be real. So now we're 2010, 2010, I've been doing travel nursing. I did not have a midwife license. I moved home to Louisiana. And originally my plan was to move home to Louisiana just really as a, a jumping board, springboard to figure out where I wanted to go. But again, the jobs were inner city, big hospital or small town where I don't wanna live. You know, like I'm not mm-hmm. moving to Montana. I'm not moving to like, I, that's not where I'm going, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, I don't have a job that, that feels good. Let me seek out midwifery here in Louisiana while I'm here. And there were a number of blockages and um, hurdles that were put in front of me that made it impossible for me to get a license. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess this is not what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Um, And yeah, as a result, that became my full exit. There were just obstacles put before me that some I couldn't jump and some I made a decision that I wasn't interested in jumping. Yeah. Oh, I so can hear you on that because when I 
paid for my license in, in Louisiana only to learn that I needed a stranger's signature in order for my license to actually mean anything, I said, oh, hell no. I'm, I will not do it. Like, it was just a bar I wouldn't cross. It was a conscious choice. The collaborative not, practice agreement? Is that what yes, you're... Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. I'm like, I don't know the person who I would be asking to sign this. I'm not begging a stranger. I'm not asking a stranger to vouch for me. How is that even helpful? Like, I could not wrap my mind around what was happening. <laughs> yeah. And I hadn't even gotten to that stage, right? Like, I, like I'll give you a quick example of something that happened to me. So the, the, the Board of Nursing, first of all, it was like I was setting a precedent because I hadn't been practiced and licensed in so long. And do we know she's competent? We're not sure. And I had to drive to Baton Rouge where it was almost like I was a criminal. Like they had me sit at this table with like five, I don't know, maybe eight even people around the table. And they're like asking me all of these questions as if I had been caught stealing or molesting a pet, like something horrible had happened. I literally just didn't have a license and I want a new license. Like, why do you want your license back? Why haven't you been practicing? You're like, they're, you know, really on me. So then the decision is, okay, we'll give you a license, but you need 300 supervised hours. Okay, girl. So like part of me was not completely upset about that because like I said, I did not have a solid preceptorship prior to me. I never felt fully comfortable. And I had been out of work as a midwife for a long time. And I tell anybody, I was, I am like a hell of a good labor and delivery nurse. I could run circles around many labor and delivery nurses. I know how to labor and delivery nurse. My midwifery was eh. So I figured you put them together, I'm going to be okay, right? So I'm like, no problem. I'll do it. It's not a big deal. But I couldn't get anybody to rock with me in this thing so they gave me what's called a provisional license Mm -hmm. so at one point there was a hospital system in the state who shall remain nameless who was hiring a lot of midwives and i was like this is fantastic they're hiring a lot of midwives in baton rouge i'm gonna apply for this job i apply for the job they initially email me for an interview and then they email me back a week later and say oh sorry we can't interview you because you don't have a real license and I'm like, okay, you sound really dumb, but okay. And then I, then I meet the person who they hire. So this is for a job at an inner city hospital working with black and brown patients. They hire a white woman who's not from Louisiana, who had zero experience, who had never even been a labor nurse, and who did not have any type of license because she had just sat for the board. But you didn't hire me, mm-hmm. someone who was already a certified nurse midwife, someone who's from the community, someone who has experience not only as a midwife, but also as a labor and delivery nurse. But because my license was, quote, provisional, huh, or temporary, I don't even know it was temporary, provisional, sure. whatever it was. You won't even interview me. And then the way the system was set up, I couldn't even t- talk to anybody. Because they have all of these ridiculous gates. It's like, I'm not applying to be a lab tech. This is a professional position. I should be able to speak with someone. But, they, you know, everything was just mm-hmm. through human resources. It was all on the internet. It was ridiculous. And that was just like uh-huh. one example of the ridiculous. I was like, you know what? Um, this is, yeah, you can have it. <laughs> you can I hear it. you. Wow. That's intense. We hope you're enjoying the Mother Wit podcast. If you are, 
please rate us and leave a review in iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to your podcast. Thanks so much. Now, back to the show. So how does System Midwife Productions come about? Tell us the origin story. Tell us what it is and tell us the origin story. So, man, it's like it has an origin story and it's been rebirthed a couple of times. But initially, while I was doing my travel nursing, it was when I really realized that birth was bad everywhere. Because I had primarily worked in Louisiana and Mississippi, I really just thought birth was bad in a patriarchal racist South, right? But then I started traveling to California, to New Hampshire, to New York, and I was like, wait a minute, birth is bad everywhere. Stop talking about, but in California? Sure, parts of California, not in all of California. Ask the people birthing in California, they'll let you know. So (laughs) I'm traveling all over the country, Um, I read a book called Pushed by Jennifer Block, um, which was really interesting to me because, you know, she is a journalist and not a medical person. So there were certainly things in the book that I would be like, ah, Jennifer, it's not exactly like that. But her book really shifted me because I was reading all of these stories that sounded like places where I had sat as the nurse where I had sat as the nurse um, mistreating a patient, where I didn't think I was mistreating her. I did. That was not my intention. I'm just following orders, doing my job. And people who work with me will let you know, if anybody's going to question an order, it's going to be Nicole. I'm a question in order if it doesn't feel safe, doesn't feel right. If the patient doesn't want to do something, I was always the nurse saying, you know, you can decline that. You can decline. So... I certainly never thought that I was doing things that could potentially be causing trauma and abuse to patients. And when I read Pushed, I was like, oh, shit, right? So I'm reading this book. And I remember I was in Minnesota. It's night shift. I'm reading the book. And I'm, I'm like talking to the other nurses. And I was like, oh, my God, y'all have to hear this quote. And I read this quote out the book. And this is like a real quote from a real mom who had had a real baby. And these nurses looked at me and I'm like, ah, whatever. They're just like basically belittling what I'm reading in this book. And I was like, okay, this is really, really bad. And people are not listening and the nurses don't want to hear it. And what can I do to help people have better experiences? And so a friend of mine suggested I start a blog. And so I started a blog back before people knew what blogs were. I had to like research, what is a blog? How do I start a blog, right? So I started a blog and it was basically an opportunity for me to tell inside stories. Like, so listen, you, you do not have to have an IV. You do not have to get, like I was working at hospitals where they were still doing enemas, right? And I'm telling you, on admission, I'm like, ma'am, you do not have to have this enema. You can decline it. And they would still they would not want it, but they didn't feel like they could decline it, even though I'm telling them they could decline it. So anyway They didn't want to make their doctor mad. Upset. They didn't want to cause any problems, right? Yep. So I began just I had it was called yourbirthright.com and I just really started blogging about birthrights and I was doing freeconferencecall.net and was like doing these classes and I just started really trying to educate people on things that you can ask for decline and how you can navigate the hospital system a little bit better um and then I got 
a cease and desist letter from an organization telling me I was infringing on their copyright, right? Because I was using your birthright and they're another organization that has nothing oh, to do with what I was doing. You may know the organization. And so I was like, at that time, I wasn't making any money. It wasn't, it was more of a hobby that I was working to turn into a business. And so I was like, okay, who cares? In addition to that, I realized that the audience that I wanted was not the audience that I had. And so as I began to really think about who do I really want my audience to be and how do I reach them, first off, you need to fix your name, right? So I literally, I don't even remember the day of how it happened, but I just got a download. System at Wife Productions, that's what it is. And it was like, okay, that is who you're going to be. That's what you're going to call yourself. That's what the business is going to be called. And I went and got an LLC and initially... What year is this at this point? This is December 2011. Okay. When I get my, because I was committed that in 2012, I was going to take off running and I was not going to be held back by like paperwork and stuff. Right. So December 2011, I get my LLC and I'm super excited about it. And initially my business model was being a virtual birth coach a virtual midwife and that's how I was marketing myself and it was really great I had a few moms I had a few people that I worked with um I helped like a woman navigate for a v-back and there you know I just it was great because we just had phone calls and I didn't have because part of me was like I don't know where I'm going to be in five years so I don't want to do anything in person I want to be able to you and at this time it was like you can really use the internet and have an online business this is great so that's what I'm doing and then um I was working a lot with Shafia Monroe, who's been um, on the front lines of creating black birth workers and black doulas for years. Um, and so one of the things that I did was I held a state meeting where we were coming together, bringing black women together who were interested in black birth. We called ourselves the Friends of ICTC, which was the International Center of Traditional Childbearing. And um, we got together, we had a beautiful meeting, we set an agenda, we set goals, and part of the goals um, included us going to WIC clinics, Healthy Start community events, and really teaching people about doulas and who doulas were and why they should want a doula and that sort of thing, natural birth, this whole thing. And um, it sounded great. It felt really good. The meeting was well. It was just great. And then I, I go to bed. I wake up the next day, and I realize all of that is cute, but there's like seven black doulas in the city, literally, that were actively working. And one doula obviously can only do so much, right? And people are working other jobs. There were no practicing black midwives in the city. So this notion of telling people to get a doula and a midwife, it didn't even fit, right? And so um, at that time, it was like, okay, so what's the next step? And that was in 2013. And that was when I shifted to begin training doulas. And initially, I started training doulas simply to get a crew so we could do this work. But I began to realize that, number one, everybody who comes to a doula trainer is not trying to be a doula. Um, and so, you know, you can train 20 people. And at that time, maybe five of them would move forward to do actively do the work. And in addition to that, I wasn't training 20 people. My classes were like seven people strong. And I had to like ask people like don't like i mean marketing really really marketing that was in 2013 right so things have shifted a lot um where now there are so many people who want to do this work and they're showing up to do the work and so it's a little bit of a different landscape but at then at back then the landscape was so different and so i started training doulas 
and then started supporting doulas. And even as I was doing my free conference call stuff, I began to notice that most of the people who signed up for my calls were already birth workers. They were people who wanted this additional insider information, like I am a doula and I'm trying to help my moms and they're not having the experience that they want. And so that was kind of like the beginnings of System Midwife Productions and, and moving. And it's just the agenda has continued to shift and ebb and flow based on um, community needs, where my voice has been needed, what has felt good for me to move forward with, a um, little bit at a time. And the vision has con continues to grow. I definitively have like what I call my Oprah vision, you know, and if you ever had, if anyone ever was interested, I probably wouldn't share it all, but there's like this huge vision of where I see people will ask me, why'd you name it Sister Midwife Productions? And I'm like, because we're going to be producing some shit. Like, we got plans. This is not no little small thing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's so cool. So, okay. Just to, like, frame this very broadly here. You start very focused on advocacy. You shift into training of doulas. And as far as I know, that's still a big piece of what you do, right? Yes. I still definitively train. I like to use the term birth sisters. So I train birth sisters to support families mm -hmm. in birth. Um, my training is one of the best things I feel like I've ever contributed to the world outside of my daughter, right? Um, I really love my training. I love the light bulbs that I see pop off in people. I love the testimonies that are letting me know that I am making a difference, not only in the lives of the families that they will work with, but that the women who come to my class, most of them choose me with intention. And I mm -hmm. focus on elevating the experiences of black women. That is like the focus for me from a spiritual perspective, from an emotional perspective, for healing. Um, I feel like there are so many people entering birth work who are coming into birth work with a goal first to heal their own personal birth trauma. And so part of my training, my goal is to help heal some of that crap because you don't need to be bringing that into somebody else's birth. And so I'm very intentional about every part of my training. We do ritual, we do song, we do space holding, we cry, we share. And my training is now virtual, um, which was a difficult decision for me to make. But I'm very excited and blessed and happy that I've been able to maintain the energy of Sister Midwife and who I am, even in spite of the fact that I've gone virtual. Um, definitely not the same as my in-person training because we're not holding hands, literally. But I am still able to bring this other level of emotional awareness and activity that happens during the training, which is really special to me. Tell us a little bit about the Birth Story Project. Yeah, so the Birth Story Project was started um, in 2018 as a way for Black women to come together in circle to just share their birth stories. It started because I had helped a woman who had a home birth. And after her home birth, uh, you know, home birth will change you, man. Like, right? So she has this beautiful transform transformative birth. And she comes to me and she's like, Mama Nicole, I think everybody needs to hear about this stuff. We need to be telling these birth stories. People don't know how good it can be, right? And I'm like, bet, let's do it. And so we initially started just having circles. And whether your birth story was a beautiful, ecstatic, walking on the moon, hospital or home or birth center birth, 
or whether it was traumatic in a crash C-section, no matter what your experience is or was, we wanted to create this safe space. And it has proven to be that. The testimonies that come out of the Birth Story Project sharing circles are phenomenal. So I wanted to go deeper with these sharing circles. And so in addition to the sharing circles, now we have an online survey. And the online survey is for anybody who has given birth in the state of Louisiana. Why? Because we understand that birth trauma and poor birth outcomes are happening to everybody. This Louisiana is not 49th just because of black birth, right? We're 49th because birth sucks in Louisiana. So um, the, the online survey is for anyone who's given birth anywhere in the state and we're collecting data. And the goal is that we'll use the data via this anonymous survey to have real hard conversations with hospital administrators and CEOs and physicians offices and be like, hey, they said your name because in this survey, we're asking for names. Like we're like, drop the name, right? Because it's one thing to just say, the hospital or birds, but which hospital and which providers are doing these things? We need to know. We need to know. And so um, we relaunched the survey in December of 2021. And we're really looking to get like we I would love to have 500 results on this survey from women who have given birth across the state in every parish, in every region, at every hospital, even home birth. And I even tell like my home birth midwife friends, tell your moms to fill that out too, because what that does is it shows the 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 difference in what these home birth families are experiencing compared to what hospital birth families are experiencing. So we want all of the stories. Well, we will definitely link to your survey and we'll get them out to listeners and even my personal mother wit mamas, right? And they will come through and add to your data collection. Yes, so you have to have given birth in that Louisiana. Out there. I love that. Ah, Louisiana moms only. Right, right, right. Yes, thank that you. That sounds great. No problem. So one other thing that you have on your website that I use a lot, I'm on your website a lot for the purposes of my clients and people who reach out to me, even if they don't end up working with me, and that's your tool to find a black doula or find a midwife. Um, so I think that this and the Earth app, which I've talked about a bunch, I think people know what that is, um, are two of the most impressive things that are out there to help people find care providers like them. And I think that that's really critical. And you even touched on this when you first started talking, the beginning of your story. I didn't quite expect that part of having the older white midwife say, hey, come work here because my people would like you. <laughs> and that's exactly what my motivation is as a midwifery educator, I, my career actually started with a grant funded position to help with the retention of people of color and midwifery programs. Um, and it, it's always been part of what I do and a big piece of what I love doing because it just makes sense. But I'm sure that there are pieces of this that even I'm missing. What, what is it that you think is most profound and important about building a larger midwifery, doula, birth worker in general workforce so that people can receive care from other people that are like them? I mean, it's, you know, to me, it's like not even rocket science, right? Like we, when we are in a vulnerable place, in a vulnerable position, yes, we want somebody who's compassionate and who has the ability to hold space in an, in an appropriate way. And, but then when you tack onto that someone who looks like you, 
right? So I'm be, I'm feeling vulnerable. I want to look into the face of someone and feel like this could be my mother. This could be my grandmother, my auntie, my sister, and I know that they have my back. We live in a country that has historically and currently um, abused black women's bodies. The foundation of the economics of this country is built on the wombs and the uteruses of black women. And so when I go to a provider, if that provider does not look like me, then there is this thing in the back of my mind, and I'm speaking collectively, not like me directly, but there's this little thing in the back of my mind, like, am I being judged? Do you really care? How are you treating me? And then because of the amounts of implicit bias that we know now that it's a real thing. It's a real thing. It exists. And the statistics show it, the facts show it, like it's not even made up. Black families, black patients, black women, black men, black people are treated differently by white providers, period. Black people do better when they have a provider that looks like them, period. We have done the research, right? So for me, it's like a no-brainer. Like, yeah, we, we have to have more um, black and brown and indigenous and Asian and um, Latina and like, you know, all of the cultures, everybody. And if we think about historically what midwifery was, your midwife came from your community, all communities, right? It wasn't that um, like the Jewish people had a Jewish midwife and the Mormon people had a Mormon midwife and the black people had a black midwife and the, the Irish people had the Irish midwife. That was the thing because this was a time when you were ushering in life and you needed it to happen in a way that was appropriate to your religion, to your culture, to your dietary restrictions or desires, like all of these various things. And yes, we're quote American, but even in that space, we have, there are different cultural aspects. But in America, because of the way that things are set up, that's the easy common denominator. And I'm going with it. I'm going with the least common denominator. She's black. Boom. I want her. Uh, we need more black midwives because, too, even though we have increasing numbers of black physicians, unfortunately, many physicians are indoctrinated into the obstetrical way. So I will tell people all the time, if you have a choice between a hospital birth with a black a physician and a home birth or a birth center birth with a white midwife, take the white midwife because I would prefer you to have a better, unless obviously if she's, you know, completely belittling and degrading and that sort of thing. But if she's like a regular run of the mill white midwife, girl, take her all day because once you walk into that hospital system, you're in the hospital system. And most physicians, black or white, are indoctrinated into that system. So we need more black midwives who are not indoctrinated into that system. And so what do you say to the people, white or black, who are going to go to the hospital either because they just haven't gotten comfortable with the idea of home birth yet or because it's not accessible to them or it's not affordable to them because scattered throughout the country, as you know, there's probably a different primary or secondary reason depending on where you are. So what do we say to those people who are trying to make the best of their hospital birth. Yeah, so number one, if you are going to the to the hospital, then definitively get you a black provider, right? If Get you a black provider and get you a black doula, right? Because we know that they're going to help be your gatekeepers. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is to just be educated. Know that there is nothing in these spaces that anybody can technically force you to do. I've heard and I've witnessed much forcing of things and so i know that there are situations and dynamics where people are really assaulted right I, i've seen it and i know that it exists that said 
always bring somebody with you. Even if you can't, quote, afford a doula, bring your mama, your sister, your uncle, somebody, not just to labor and birth, but also prenatally, because you want to set the tone that I am not alone. I have a support system and not here, not today, not on my watch. You want, you want that energy up over you so that when you move forward with your birthing experience, people know that you like basically you not to be played with, right? Like you are not the one, not here, not today. I mean, I think to your point, the early research on doulas, in case people don't know this information, is it wasn't just about people who had training. In fact, that came later as a consequence of the early research. It was on having a supportive person, trained or untrained. So that meant mamas, it meant aunts, it meant everyone. I do believe it was always a woman, a female identified woman, but in that early research. But now we know a lot more. Um, and I, I really think that that is the roots of all the early doula trainings that we've seen. And of course, these doula trainings are taking on very different um, perspectives and becoming much more individual, like the work that you're doing. It's become so much more about getting to a deeper level of things. And I think that's where your whole, your thoughts about the birth plan kind of segue into what the work that you're doing, right? Because it, it was so simple at one time. It was so simple. And the um, other piece of that was too, that it was a person who was not connected to the hospital system. So it doesn't matter that you have a really good attentive nurse. It's still this other person who is not a nurse, not a doctor, not even your midwife, but like this other person, trained or untrained. Right. Yeah. And that reminds me of, you know, one of the hospitals that I worked at for a long time that shall remain nameless has a <laughs> quote unquote doula program. And what their doula program is, is one person that's on shift, if you're lucky, each shift. And so she's literally running to 12 different labor rooms. And she's basically just an extra set of hands. And the only time she can be super duper helpful is if 11 people don't want her and one person does. <laughs> yep. So it's kind of a joke, right? So you can't just look at the programs that people say they have, or this kind of reminds me of when a hospital calls itself a birthing center. Nothing gets me more frustrated than when a hospital labor and delivery unit calls itself a birthing center. Where is because the I lie, can't tell you. Tanya? Come on, tell them. Right? Oh, <laughs> frustrated. Okay. Um, all right, moving along. I want to know about your Art of Birthing conference that you put on in 2021. I want you to tell us about that and tell us what you envision the future for that looking like. Yeah, so I'm in New Orleans. And every time y'all see Mama Nicole, I'm talking about infant mortality and birth trauma and mamas dying. And in New Orleans, we like to have fun and drop a couple of drinks and dance and party. And so I was like, okay, y'all are probably sick of me saying these things. How can we shift the conversation while still educating and bringing information? And so... Um, I create. I had been holding on to this idea of using art and advocacy around birth for some years. And so the first event I did was a play. There was a woman um, named Karen Brody who wrote a play out of New York called uh, Birth, I want to say. And it was kind of vagina monologue style. Um, and it was funny. It was thought provoking. It was a really, really good play. And I think it was eight or nine women. So of course, every single character in the play invited their friends. Um, we had this big event. I had art up. We had belly painting going on. We had refreshments. We had wine for purchase. And at the end of the play, we had a talk back, right? So we had this entertainment. 
coupled with this education. And I was like, bam, this is it. This is where we're going. And so a couple of years later, I coined the art of birthing, where when what I say is that we use various forms of artistic expression from spoken word, song and dance, music, art, documentaries, um, to really raise awareness about perinatal disparities, birth options, birth choices, and as well as to talk about solutions while having fun. The Birth Justice Film Festival is by far my favorite piece of it, where we show anywhere from three to six documentaries, all covering various different topics around reproductive justice, reproductive health. So in 2020, we went online and it was great because we really got to reach a bigger national audience and we mailed out these great virtually vibing boxes. It was a lot of fun. Um, with the Birth Justice Film Festival last year, we showed highlights from a documentary, Legacy Power Voice, which is a new documentary that's being created to highlight the legacy power and voice of Black midwives. Um, and it was exciting for me because I had been interviewed and so we showed my little clip. So that was super exciting. Uh, we showed uh, Tutwiler, which was a documentary about the doula prison program in Tutwiler, Alabama. And then we showed Belly of the Beast. Belly of the Beast is a documentary about the horrific hysterectomy sterilization stuff that was happening out in the California prisons. I'm talking deep, deeply disturbing, deeply disturbing to watch this documentary. And then after the documentaries, we are so blessed, particularly because we're virtual now, um, are doing this hybrid thing to have the actual producers and people who were featured in the documentary actually on this in, as a part of this panel discussion afterwards. And so to be able to share this information, but then to also have a deep conversation about what can we do now. That sounds awesome. Very cool. All right. So I know we need to wrap up here soon. And I just want to wrap up on a final note, talking a little bit about entrepreneurship, mainly because I have a growing community of midwives. At the time when I started Motherwit, and I was about to move from New York City to New Orleans, again, I didn't know anybody who was a midwife who had done something like this, unless they were like a home birth midwife and owned their business. But to me, that still fell into a different category. So again, I started getting acquainted with the New Orleans community, learned about you, learned about Nurse Nikki, and you guys were like theoretical people to me at the time. I didn't know you, um, but I was watching you guys do really interesting things. Um, since then, I've had people reach out to me and even people I kind of vaguely knew in my life who are doing really cool, interesting things. Some of them have already been on this podcast or will be this season. Um, and so there's this growing community of midwives who are flexing their entrepreneurial muscles in really creative ways. And you and I know, and this whole group of people I'm referring to know what a challenge that is because there is absolutely nothing in our backgrounds and training <laughs> that give us <laughs> this body of information or the confidence to do this. And, you know, I mentioned this at the very beginning and people may have picked up on the word and wondered what it is. Nicole attended a startup accelerator called Propeller a year or two before I did. And that is a New Orleans based program that is just fantastic. I'll make sure to link it in the show notes for anyone in the New Orleans or in Louisiana who's interested in learning about this. For me, that's a big piece of the education, the more formal education that I've received on running a business. I'm curious where you started, where Propeller, Propeller came kind of late. So you learned a lot on your own before ever going to Propeller. But what are some of the like tidbits that you can share with people about being brave enough to do this and how to approach it? 
Yeah. So it's an interesting thing because like you said, there's nothing in our formal education or curriculum that includes entrepreneurship, right? Not even how to run a midwifery practice. We don't even really learn that, right? So it's a very interesting thing for me. Um, one of the things that happened for me was when I started System Midwife Productions, I was very intentional about making it an LLC and not a nonprofit, even though now I'm considering creating a nonprofit. But at that time, I was like, I don't want to grant chase don't want to grant chase i want to create a solid product that i can sell that will pay me what i need to live and have a good time and also have money left over to run a program that was always my vision i am fortunate in that um and i think there are a lot of people probably in my generation who are black who can say this that both of my grandmothers were entrepreneurs so i always knew in the back of my mind because at the time we had they had to be entrepreneurs nobody wasn't giving them jobs for real right so both of my grandmothers were in their own rights entrepreneurs. One was the candy lady, the herb seller, the, the, the person who sold spiritual charms and things of that nature. And the other one ran like a bar, right? And so I saw all my life that there was this option for me to have my own thing. I always too thought in my mind, it's like, you know, you, you buy low, you sell high. That's common sense. Um, I knew I needed to make more than I spent. Okay. Um, I knew I didn't want to have to worry about loans. And so I was like, what, how can I do this in a way that I am profitable early on? And I was very fortunate in that, um, you know, my overhead was limited. I was doing doula trainings in my mom's living room. So there, the overhead was very minimal. And I just made a very intentional plan to move forward in this bootstrapping kind of way. Um, I got into Propeller. I think it was maybe four years after I had already been in business and what Propeller helped me to do. And I think a place where we often stumble is it reminded me that you cannot have a successful social entrepreneur venture without first being a successful entrepreneur. And it realigned me with the understanding that you can make money. You should make money. It is okay to make money. Um, and this notion of, public community service is great, but if you don't have any money, you can't serve anyone. So how do we find that balance? And I think for many of us as heart-centered entrepreneurs, we're often called, we find it difficult to want to charge for the things that we are giving and providing. Um, one of my teachers, her name is Wapio. I don't know if you know Wapio, I love Wapio. Um, one of the things that she teaches, and I share this with my students all the time, is it is okay to give something away for free. But pick that one thing you're going to give away for free, feel good about it, and that's it. You don't have to give away everything for free because if you do, again, you cannot serve, right? Um, many of the people who come to my training, they're all like, I just want to give free doula services. And I, you know, I smile and I nod and I listen. And then I help them see that like one of my other um, partners in success in this thing, Nakia Lawson talks about, there is a way to earn and serve. You can do both. And just because you're earning doesn't mean that you're bad or evil. And there are so many things that we have to uh, contend with in our culture around our money issues. So I would encourage people who are interested in pushing into an entrepreneurial space to number one, like right now, I'm following all sorts of business money people on my Instagram. I'm like trying to eliminate, I'm trying to shift my algorithm so that there's no more birth stuff coming across my line. I don't need to see the birth stuff. I know what's happening in the birth world. I don't need your educational video about 
choices and options, I actually can create these if I wanted to. So like, that's not what I need. I need to understand how to invest, how to increase my profits, how to market. Don't be afraid to take classes. Don't be afraid to put yourself out there. It can be a little scary sometimes, right? But if you connect with business people, then you can learn business. You have to connect with business people to learn business. I want to hug you right now because I needed to hear a little bit about what you just said. It's like everything you said somewhere in me, I know, but we all, I don't know, we need to hit the reset button once in a while for sure. So you just gave me some really profound lessons. I have no doubt that you just gave a bunch of listeners who are traveling this path because other than the midwives I just mentioned, two podcasts that air in the season before you. Um, are former clients who are becoming birth workers, which is a very common thing. I think we've all experienced this in this field. So I'm dealing with a lot of people in a lot of capacities who are building things from the ground up right now. I know they all need to hear that. If I needed to hear it, they need to hear it for sure. So I thank you for those pieces of advice. I thank you so much for taking the time to come on this show and share your story, share your work. Your work is amazing. Thank you. And I love watching you from the background when you don't know I'm watching you like creepy stalker. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I I just I really appreciate you, Nicole. I appreciate the conversation. It's always fun. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I'm so looking forward to sharing you with the world. And a gentle reminder that nothing we discuss on this show should ever be considered medical advice. Please speak to your local provider about anything that comes up in this show that resonates with you and your needs and your health care. Hey everyone, it's me, Tanya, your host here at the Motherwit Podcast. You know I sometimes invite my clients on the show to talk about their birth stories and postpartum experiences, but I want to tell you a little bit more about what those clients and I actually do together. I started Motherwit to help people in the perinatal period achieve their health and wellness goals. That means whether you're hoping to conceive and struggling with high blood pressure or high blood sugar, or you're having trouble managing anxiety or depression in the postpartum period, or maybe you just need support and advocacy between prenatal or postpartum visits, I can help. Get a discount on your first consultation with me at motherwitmaternity.com using the code FIRSTCONSULT10% OFF. That's one zero percent symbol, all one word. I'm looking forward to working with you and maybe having you on the show too.